Hi, and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropists who are committed to planetary purpose, or in other words, a holistic vision for planet Earth. My name is Julian Guderlai, and in today's episode, I'm hosting an interview with Mohamed Mostaho Raji. Mo is a Bolivian scientist in cellular and molecular biology. He works in San Francisco at the Department of Regenerative Medicine and Stem Cell Research. He did his PhD at the Harvard Department of Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology. He received a degree in biotechnology and bioinformatics. And Mo will tell us what neuroscience is and share his dedication and understanding about what changes neurons have in the brain since embryonic development to adulthood. So from baby to adulthood. And he's on a quest to prove that through technology, we can reprogram our circuits in the brain. So basically a form of epigenetics. And the studies he carries out with his team have had very good results so far, changing the way in which we conceive the human brain. And with these words, let's welcome Mohamed to the show. Hi, hi Mo. Hello, Julian. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, very excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm stoked to have you on the line and just get to chat with you about brain research and neuroscience and all the all the things that make us geek out so jump right in man i i know you are you're up to a few different amazing things and one of them is your scientific research can you explain that in in the simplest terms that that you have well i studied the brain now more the human brain but i actually used to study the mouse brain before and what happens both in human and in mouse is that by the time you're born the large majority of your brain is already done like just happens inside your mom, there is a very small window of time in which all your neurons in your brain are made. You have in the human brain, you have 86 billion neurons and 1 trillion connections. Basically, by the time you're born, all these neurons have already been made. They have recognized their partners and they kind of already connected with them. How does the body actually do that? Is that a, a stable thing? And can that be pushed to change later on? That's basically what I study. Really cool. And so what are you finding out when you went from mice to humans? Are we actually able to evolve our um, neuron con connections? So humans are more complicated. So that's the first thing you need to know <laughs> compared to a mouse. So there is a, the mouse brain is about a thousand times simpler than, uh, than the human brain. So one of the things that you actually uh, see is that the more we are uh, in the higher in the evolutionary ladder. So I mean, humans versus mouse versus like salamanders, the less plastic the brain actually is. Uh, so, you know, you can take a salamander, you can cut in the adult salamander, half of the brain out and it will regenerate. The mouse seems wow, to- Wow, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> right? It, it yeah. completely regenerates it. And it's pretty cool. I think it's actually really, really cool. But for some reason we have lost that the human brain itself retains certain, certain uh, we call it lack of plasticity, but it's actually really just an epigenetic uh, regulation that keeps the neurons from changing. Got it. Well, just to m make sure that we're, we're using language that like really works for everyone who's listening right now, can Correct. you maybe just give your own definition of epigenetics uh, first, and then we go a little bit deeper into what you're researching? Absolutely. So epigenetics is um, the regulation of DNA and genes inside the cells. Basically, what happens is that every cell in your body has about 30,000 genes. Uh, but not every, not every cell in your body uses all 30,000 genes at, all, at a given time. If you think about it, your eye cells look very different from your teeth, right? So they have to be 
a way for shut down some genes and turn on some other genes. And that's why we actually call it epigenetics. So basically the way that our genes are turned on in any given cell. In a given cell, correct. Okay, and so when we talk about how is, uh, the genes are turned on, what are the factors, um, environment, the, the, pro the protein combinations that kind of uh, trigger the, is the DNA, is, is that correct? Correct, so there is this uh, thing called epigenetic modifiers, which are basically proteins that sit on top of DNA, and they either allow other genes to come and regulate these genes or block, or block them, basically. Um, so that's what we call epigenetics. Of course, the environment plays a big role into um, pushing these epigenetic modifiers one way or the other. Got it. Okay. So if we go from that kind of common understanding to your research and how neurons change from embryonic development into adulthood. Mm -hmm. So it's, that, that basically means that we used to assume or the science used to assume that the brain doesn't change at all and neurons don't develop any further. Is that right? Correct. So it seems to be that the, once you're made and make a neuron, that neuron remains stable for the rest of your life. Uh, and it seems that it's actually a needed mechanism uh, because we have lost it. Again, species that were evolutionary simpler than us have a lot more plasticity than we do. So there is this safeguard to keep your brain and your neurons from changing. And it's a normal biological process but it's unclear what that process actually is and how do we can actually change it, right? Like how can we, uh, in the context of disease, so if you make a wrong brain in autism, like schizophrenia, uh, bipolar disease, whatever you want to call it, there's a reason, this is, these are neurons that either you made more, you made less of them, uh, or you make more connections, you make less connections of them. But at the end of the day, these are diseases of neurons and neuronal connections. So if we were able to, for instance, reopen this plasticity, change the brain, change the circuitry, then we're actually talking about like a real game changer. <laughs> totally. So that would mean we'd have conscious influence in how our neuroplasticity is kind of developing and how we're able to, well, would it be right to say grow neurons or, or grow neural connections? You will get new neural connections and uh, change the neurons that already exist there. Um, so right now, so this is kind of what I did before for my PhD. Right now, I, um, one major limitation, as I mentioned before, is that we can't actually access uh, the developing human brain that easily, right? It requires actually taking an embryo out. So that is not really a feasible <laughs> uh, solution, in, particularly in, in like the majority of countries. So uh, very recently, there, there has been this major development in, uh, in biology, which is called this... Uh, human brain organoids. And brain organoids are, I want to clearly clarify, they're not brains. They are pieces of neuronal-like tissue that we make from stem cells. So we take a piece of your skin, we reprogram that skin to become stem cell-like, and then we push them through the normal mechanisms in which uh, the brain is made inside development. And what you end up is with like a little piece, maybe four or five millimeters in size, that has human neurons and that those human neurons connect and they form like a main minor, very small again, four or five millimeters, about a million cells, but these are human cells. Uh, and this is the closest we can get. Again, it's not the perfect model. It's not a human brain, but it's the closest we can get without actually touching a human brain uh, right now. So I study a lot of these human brain organoids right now to try to 
really understand how is how are the human neuronal connections made? Uh, how are they different from the mouse? Uh, and doing this in, in a living piece of tissue, right? Got it. And so if you were to describe what's the, the breakthrough um, research so far in that kind of field of research, like what, what are the results that you can, you can share with us that, that are exciting to, you know, uh, I mean, I find it fascinating public. that if you think about it, a couple months ago, that was a piece of your skin. Yeah. And now this resembles a little neuronal connection. But it also gives you, if you think about it, a, lot, a little window about, uh, into the understanding of like what makes the human brain special. Like you can make it from your skin, but we can also make it from monkeys. We can make it from chimpanzee. We can make it from species that are very close to extinction, right? Um, and actually try to understand their brain before it's too late. <laughs> Uh, it is fascinating, actually. Yeah, and that's and that's why I'm having you on the show because I love I love to understand uh, more and more and deeper and deeper into how how this world is, how we've shaped it, and what abilities of control or abilities of influence we have, right? And so you're basically doing that on the scientific front, which often for people like myself who are more on the um, you know media and creation side of things. I sometimes don't even have the patience to wait until science announces something is a real fact. However, I've learned a lot in this lifetime that facts are more important than ever because there's a lot of people <laughs> telling lies. So this is here, here we are in this conversation. Um, one of the reasons why I want to really literally put the focus on science um, for here right now. Absolutely. You know, and I think we're in the, in the right time uh, to still, you know, get... Unfortunately, like it's predicted that the majority of the primate species are going to disappear within the next 20 to 30 years. So we're still at the time where we can actually uh, try to save some of them. Uh, so there's a lot of effort uh, around the world into, for, into preserving them for once, but also saving these pieces of skin, reprogram them to make them stem cells, and you know, uh, have access to these cells even after these species are gone. Mm -hmm. One of the major issues right now is that a lot of these, these communities are so small that they're very susceptible to disease, for instance. So a single disease could maybe wipe out every chimpanzee out there, <laughs> right? It, just, it will take one virus to do so, right? So, and this is because there's not enough individuals to like get this natural variation. So what if we could reinsert variation later on? Uh, if we can take these cells, modify them, and put them back into a newborn chimp, uh, could we actually start reintegrating new diversity into, into nature? Um, there, so there's a few questions that kind of pop up for me. One is, of course, like the moral line, and I can only imagine how, um, you know, that's a different answer for a lot of different people. Yeah, so one of the questions we get a lot is that these, these little organoids are, again, brain, they're not brain, but they're brain tissue-like. Right, and uh, you know, we get questions like, "Are these thinking?" <laughs> and if they're thinking, you know, what what is the definition of them? Are they human? Uh, <laughs> like, what what regulations apply to this piece of tissue? Even though they come from a skin, at this point, they're neuronal connections. Uh, you know, I, I ask a lot to myself: is like, you know, what is the minimal definition of a human? For instance, is is the piece of the definition of a human a piece mm. of human brain? And if so. <laughs> What are we making? 
Like, uh, and we actually have a lot of discussions about this at the scientific meetings. You know, we are under the agreement that these are not living organisms; they're pieces of tissue, right? But there is uh, the, the lines are blurring quite a bit. You know, there's a recent publication in which um, this other group at Yale was able to take quite literally the brain of a dead pig and re- bring it back to life, basically and kept it alive for hours, right? Uh, so we are actually starting to blur that line of what is to be alive, what is not to be alive. And uh, I think that this is going to start bringing very soon a lot of discussions into what it actually means to be human and what it actually means to be a human life. I think it's uh, something to start thinking. So uh, where is your answer to that, to that really highly complex question? You know, I, uh, as a neuroscientist, I like to think that um, that the most important organ in the body is the brain, <laughs> uh, of course. Uh, but I'm a little bit biased because I make a living out of that. <laughs> right. But um, you know, it, it is a difficult question to ask. Um, I think you know this this organism doesn't have, in the case of its pig, it doesn't have the whole rest of parts of the pig. It cannot be excited with light or sensations or anything like that. Mm. So will I consider it to be a purely alive? Well, the brain is working, but there is no life connected to it, right? Uh, are these brain organoids alive? They are alive. I mean, they're cells that are alive, but are they human brains? They're not. Uh, they had never seen. That's so interesting because, you know, there is, for one, you're basically proving that a brain alone isn't life, which means the brain might not be the most important function for life. Right? <laughs> sorry, sorry to you, but for me, that's, it's never been the case. I think our brains are marvelous and incredible. But even like if you look at the heart itself, the heart sends more information to the brain than, than vice versa. And the heart is like the largest electromagnetic field in our body. So um, I would definitely- Yeah, but what if, what if we were to connect yeah. one of these brains to an artificial heart? I don't know. I mean, this, this is why I have you on to put myself in the spot a little bit as well, because, you know, we're, we're going into a place of science where all these questions will be, we will have to face them, right? The same as with technology and artificial intelligence and, um, and, and so forth. There, there are some incoming timelines, I call them, of progress and advancement in our society that um, it would be foolish of ours to, to just kind of um, avoid those topics. And so this is one of them and research and the brain and life itself. Um, and then ultimately leads us to consciousness, right? Cause like, what is consciousness that has an awareness of this, of this life form? What's your answer to that? What is consciousness? I don't know. I don't know. Can we actually define consciousness? I actually asked that question to my, to some students whenever I teach, I said, you know, if you were to point to a piece of your body where your consciousness resides, what would that be? Where does your consciousness live? And uh, <laughs> interesting, I would probably point right above my head, but right. that's that's a, an, that's something that I don't know if anybody can follow. That it's, I feel like consciousness is the observer of the body, and the body is like um, an instrument. You know, we used to think the body is a mechanism that is just like a machine. You 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 hit the right buttons, it does the right things. You do the right inputs, it, you know, it, et cetera, et cetera. But I come to understand that it's beyond a machine. It's more like a sophisticated instrument. And if you attune that instrument, certain abilities become possible. And so with those abilities also is the ability of awareness. And then usually the awareness, even in, in regular life, 
uh, can take one almost like out of the body while you're still in the body experience. But the body is basically like your qualia perception, right? It's like the, the piece that um, qualia, meaning like your sensory perception that your body is able to sense, your body, body is able to feel, your body and your brain are able to think. But I don't think that that means they are the consciousness. I think the consciousness is an awareness that kind of sits up above the body. But there is two kinds of awareness, right? Like you're yeah. talking about awareness of your environment or your surroundings, which that comes through sensory perception. That's right, yeah. Right? But there is also, like sometimes when you wake up and feel sick, like you're just in your bed and you're like, hmm, today I'm sick, right? And there is no awareness of your surrounding, there is awareness of your inside, right? Yeah. I mean, like my body's not acting right today. Uh, even before you actually have any other symptoms, right? So there has to be an internal component of awareness. Yeah. Well, but then even internal, the question is, does it need to be inside the body or can the awareness still be off the body realm, right? But yeah, it's an interesting question to explore. I, I definitely am not looking for the one right answer because <laughs> if anybody can have that and prove that, please, please um, stop hiding behind your laptop and, and share it with all of us. Leave it in the comments, please. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Mo, let me change it up a little bit because I think these, these are some really interesting and con controversial topics. But I know you're also um, working really hard on something that's called Clubes de Ciencia um, in Bolivia. So like um, science, science club in that sense, right? Or, yeah. Can you share a little bit about that project and what you're, what you're trying to achieve there? All right. So it seems that, you know, like I would say one of the major uh, drivers of economic development is science and technology. Uh, yet there is a big gap into the developing world and the developed world. Um, and this gap is just getting worse over time, you know, so the idea is how do we start bridging this gap in education and education applied to science and applied to solutions around society? Uh, and how, what can we do about this? And honestly, something we realized early on is that what worked for us as people who came from this country uh, and all of a sudden end up in top universities and doing science at a PhD level. And really what we had in common is that at some point we met a scientist, we fell in love with science. Uh, and decided that this is what we wanted to do. Even though at that point, everyone told us we were crazy and you know, this, this career just wasn't for us. Um, so Club de Ciencia is that, it's the opportunity to bring scientists from everywhere in the world, wherever, wherever they are, into the developed world, sorry, into the developing world, to inspire uh, the new generation and to tell them that they can also do it. Uh, and to, to serve inspire as- young, young Bolivians in that sense. In this sense, so we work in Bolivia. Uh, I personally run the program in Bolivia, but we actually have six parallel programs uh, around Latin America and Spain. Mm -hmm. So we have Spain, Bolivia, Paraguay, Brazil, Peru, Mexico, and Colombia. So, you know, together we actually, we're talking about about 5,000 students per year. And this has been around for about five years now. So, well, you know, it, it, it is a major undertaking you're actually changing the life of those young people and showing them what's possible. Correct. So, you know, I focus a lot in Bolivia. I am Bolivian, uh, as you mentioned in the introduction. Uh, with Bolivia, we had a very different case than most other countries because we realized that we were completely alone. You know, in, in Colombia, in Mexico, in Spain, we have other programs to inspire students. They have a lot of uh, 
ways for uh, the government to help students. But when we, when we arrived to Bolivia, we were completely alone. And we're, <laughs> uh, so it was a very difficult situation um, altogether. So we ended up taking a lot of other roles that we originally did not plan to. So now we work uh, quite a bit, not only with young students, but we also work with universities to try to improve their programs. We work with the government to try to also improve their basic education. Uh, and we work a lot with the US Department of State as, as a matter of public diplomacy and understanding between countries. Uh, I, you might or might not know this, but uh, Bolivia and the United States lack formal diplomatic relationships. Although there are embassies in both countries, there's no ambassadors. And this has been the case for about 12 years now, 11 years, sorry. Uh, so how do you now all of a sudden bring scientists from the United States to try to change the education in a country that lacks diplomatic relationships? This is so <laughs> fascinating, Mo, because I think this is really, again, one of those fields of reality um, where, you know, in our modern world where, you know, Instagram and Facebook and WhatsApp connects more than a billion people at this point, it seems like we're already also connected, but then the reality is between some countries, there isn't even a, a proper diplomatic relationship, right? And then how does, how does that affect uh, youth and young people? And, and the effects are quite, they're quite severe because it's definitely perpetuating an inequality. So I really want to acknowledge you for what you're putting together in Bolivia and beyond Bolivia. Oh, thank um, you. Something to keep in mind is actually there is about, about three times more cell phones in Bolivia than there are citizens. <laughs> so, so no, actually, that's actually not true. There's about two times more cell phones than there are citizens. But uh, so it's insane. So it's not, and and uh, if you think about it, it's really not lack of connection. Like there, there is internet all, you know, in uh, very rural areas in Bolivia. Uh, but if you also think about other programs such as like the one laptop per child that... Uh, that Bill Gates promoted back in the early 2000s and where they basically were giving out free laptops, uh, which cost about $100 to make uh, to kids all around the developing world. And if you look at the numbers in Peru on a similar program in Colombia, they just both failed. So it's not really access to technology alone that makes the world connected or that improves this gap between education in the developer and the developing world. You have to actually have a program and you have to actually have a transition uh, so you know integration also in the daily life right yeah yeah so you know what, what happens is you give someone a, uh, uh, all of a sudden a laptop well the first thing they're going to do is be on facebook so you're not going to improve their education you might actually even just decrease it which is what happened in peru right which gets me to one of my um well favorite and least favorite topics which is digital literacy and the necessity for people to learn how to navigate the, the depth of our um, neural network, if you want to call the internet that, because it's, you can get lost in this place so easy and you can believe something that isn't real so fast, right? Correct. No, it, it's crazy um, to even think, you know, like we used to think, I think of, as computers or cell phones as such a separate entity, but I think at this point, they're kind of starting to merge as being an extension of ourselves. <laughs> you know yeah i mean realistically that already is the case because your phone i mean for most people that have a smartphone it stays within one meter of proximity to them probably at least 50 percent of the day if not longer correct and but I, think about everything yeah. you do you communicate through yourself and you yeah 
you learn through yourself and you you basically this is an extension of your world and is what it, it just like any other part of your body it is whatever you want to make it i have a question here for you um that is you know related to my my earth vision question which kind of is the core question of this podcast and one of my quests but it has to do with technology and science and um yeah this organic realm we're in you know so i want to i want to understand in your own words like what do you see are the dangers of us becoming too technological and what do you think are on the other side of it becoming possibly too dangerous with being too technological what what can we preserve or how can how can we preserve some of this organic realm in, in which we're born into so you know i think something we need to start doing more often is using technology towards really understanding what people are and where people come from and i think it's something that you know like just, i'll give you an example one of the uh, so bolivia has 36 official languages uh but uh, many people don't speak in either one of them uh we know right. the exception of spanish and um something that we saw in the very first group of uh students we had which was very small it was only a hundred of them one of them went after and said you know for me my language which is aymara uh is very important but i actually don't know it like my grandparents speak it to me and you know and that's about it. But, and she considered herself like, kind of the same with me and Farsi. You know, like I'm half Iranian, but I don't speak Farsi. But my grandparents speak Farsi. My mom speaks Farsi. And they speak Farsi to each other, but they don't, you know, I kind of felt out of the conversation. Got it, yeah. So all, when one of our students was like, you know, this is how I'm going to change it. So she developed her app to teach herself Aymara. And now has like, I think it's the most uh, downloaded app in the country because she's basically wow. pushing this uh, so that other people can re-rescue these ancestral languages. And I think this is something we need to do. We need to preserve our identity, but I don't think we need to be afraid of technology. I think we need to use technology to really drive this. Uh, you know, archeological sites is something that I think it's particularly important for you and also for me. Uh, <laughs> you know, but there is just like such a, uh, gapping knowledge, even from people who live in an, in the same country. Like, I don't think many Americans, for instance, can name 10 archaeological sites that exist in the United States. Right? Yeah. No, I, I would be put on the spot here as well. I don't think I can name 10 archaeological sites right away. Um, possibly, you know, but it, it's anyway. So, it, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, it could help us connect to the world we're in and the world we're off and also our cultural heritage. I think in North America, this is also a very strong topic with the native and indigenous people um, that languages are getting lost and the new generations either haven't learned to properly conserve and speak them or, or will also not learn that unless we, you know, um, choose to, which is um, a choice I can't make, but uh, we choose to preserve those languages. And right. But how do you do it in a way that they actually complements the millennial personality right like we, we are millennials millennials are not particularly known for like sitting down in a library and studying something from the book or well i think to a degree some some libraries will have to be taken into the virtual space you know so right. that there is a virtual reality library of languages of the planet and um, if you wanted to you could immerse into it and learn it and speak it with with people in a virtual field However, though, this is kind of where I'm not afraid of technology at all. I think I'm, I'm a big fan of technology. It enables us to have um, this conversation right now. And also, I, I, do, I do believe that planet Earth is 
uh, an organic planet for a reason. We are in organic bodies for a reason. So I'm not here to become a cyborg, you know, and I don't, I don't really fancy this idea of the planet becoming, um, you know, for, for how real it is right now for like burning down forests to put cattle fields up there. Like that doesn't make no sense to me, you know, um, or, or, or um, genetically modified soybeans, you know, and just to be a political or an economic power. So I think that's a trend that we're still seeing played out on the world right now that I, I hope we can reverse or we can at least find a better balance to because this, the, the organicness of the planet is important. But for me, it comes hand in hand with a balance of also the virtual spaces, um, the technological spaces, right? Where we can preserve cultures, we can, we can teach knowledge in a different way. And ultimately it doesn't matter if you grow up in Bolivia, in Germany, in Afghanistan, or in the United States, you have access because you have access to this universal library. That would yeah. be a hope I guess I have for education. Yes, and it's, it's a hard balance. I'm actually thinking a lot about this right now. How do you give access without interfering with sovereignty of the country? Um, without, you know, like, we want to globalize the world, but we don't want to globalize each culture. You know, we want each culture to still maintain totally. its own identity. And it is a hard balance. I think it's something that us as a scientific community, but also the governmental community, need to sit down and be like, okay, how do we do our job? And how do we give equal access without imposing and kind of having this imperialistic point of view? Uh, such a great question, man. So th these are the questions that are in my mind uh, all day, every day, basically. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't even know if I've said that publicly on the show yet, but one of my goals with this um, podcast and this um, idea of holistic visions, and you and I met at a symposium called Holistic Visions before as well, where, where people from around the world would come together to kind of gather and, and, and you know, connect with. Um, and that, that symposium was more about this, this spirituality of cultures, right? But just the vision of for earth itself. And I think for me, one of the visions I have is, could it be possible to create um, a resolution or a, an agreement that has a United Nations level uh, uh, you know, confirmation that's being confirmed on a level as like the World Economic Forum or the United Nations at some point down the line, you know, that allows us as humanity to come up with a shared future, a shared vision, 100 years, 150 years, 200 years into the future. And from there, basically, you know, reverse engineer what we can do in the now as cultures, as countries, as nation states to move towards that vision. And I think it's a, maybe still a long journey to go, but may, let me ask you right here, right now, like what would be part of that vision for you if you were to go all the way, like seven generations, 200 years into the future? First, I think we need to better uh, define what human is uh, before we define what humanity is. Uh, <laughs> you know, we have a declaration of human rights, but the definition of human, it's, as I've mentioned before, changing. And I think that's something that... Uh, <laughs> We really need to sit down as, as, as the world and think this is human, this is humanity, and this is what we want to preserve of being human and why we want to preserve of being humane. Uh, so I think that that's the immediate task. Uh, on the longer term, I think we need to think about it's like what is important to us and what is important to each culture. And try to say, okay, what are the safeguards? What are the check and balances around uh, in which we can actually preserve this? And what is actually not realistic to preserve? You know, <laughs> you mentioned something that I was, uh, I, I, I find it 
interesting. I mean, it is interesting in general, right? Which is the idea of uh, GMOs. Uh, like GMOs are there, we, we can like avoid them, but it's also important because they allow us to grow a large amount of food in a relatively small space, right? So as population keeps growing, we are gonna find, have to find ways to feed these people without getting them in starvation, right? But how the only realistic way that we have to preserve the world and preserve as much of the world as possible is to try to feed these people in the, live, in the smallest amount of land possible as well. So it is a balance, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, definitely, I mean, I don't think we necessarily need genetically engineered um, food for that. However, I mean, we've been mixing and testing genetic engineering um, for hundreds of years by, you know, breeding plants together. Um, now it just has reached a complete new level, right? Uh, our abilities and our technological scientific abilities. Have so, you know, I, yeah. I, I'm not going to say one is good, what is bad. I, you know, it's, it's not my job to do so, but it's something to think about. It's like, you know, if we want to preserve most of the forest, well, how do we preserve most of the forest? We have to find ways to grow as much food as we will grow in the whole forest in like a 20th of this space. Right. I mean, there are, there are alternative um, ideas out there that are, that are working, right? I think one yeah, of the yeah. biggest problems, especially that we're seeing uh, with the Amazon right now, is that it's, it's a very, very ancient model of economic success. Um, that these actions are based on. So the space itself, um, it's just, there's just so much, so many better ways to use um, life <laughs> and soil Absolutely, and, yeah. and forest, even from an economic, purely economic perspective. There, there are so many better ways to use. And then from an, you know, an, an environmental consciousness, I think it's, it's a catastrophe that we're doing um, to the planet and at the same time I'm one of those who I don't like to stay there very long because I think we uh, as a generation are equipped to look at that and realize it's the doing of a very misinformed level of consciousness being still in power and we have to be strong enough to to watch it and reverse it within this lifetime over the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 70 years. And yeah, it looks really dire and a lot of people are really lost in the discussion whether we're even around for the next 70 years. But I think we will be. And so for that, it's, it's vital for us to, to talk about this and think about this and um, understand where the moral lines, kind of like with your research, right? Like where's the moral line to say, is that a human? Is that life? Um, and where's, where's the line? I mean, personally, I would suggest, and not everybody might be with me, but I would suggest humanity is also just one species on the planet so why do we need to cover a hundred percent of the planet with our infrastructure i would actually suggest to at least get 30 to 40 percent of the planet to be an absolute nature reservoir and then i'm not just talking about the oceans and i'm not just talking about the the polar caps because they're basically already not settled by humans right so some some bad media sources would say well the humans are only on 10 percent of the planet already and I guess that's what I'm trying to say is, is how can we consciously create those zones where we grow enough food for people. We have um, housing and water, food, shelter for everyone in a, in a humane way. Right. And then also we give nature the space to breathe and build the um, environment for us because it, it does that. And it, it, nothing else does it as marvelously as nature when we leave it be. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, if you, if it makes you feel any better, I don't even think the human brain is that special to begin with. You know, it's not the biggest brain. <laughs> Neanderthal had a bigger brain than we do. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, whales, elephants have much bigger brains than we do. It clearly does not regenerate as good as the uh, salamanders. <laughs> so, you know, it does, it's not the one that has the most neurons. So, you know, if, uh, if the human brain is not that special, then why is, why is humans so special? To begin with? It's, a good, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, we're, we find ourselves really special because we have an awareness of ourselves, right? Um, I would also say in terms of the cosmic infinity that seems to be out there and uh, in there in ourselves, the human experience is maybe special, but maybe what is, what maybe is special, maybe, you know? maybe it's, a wor- it's a word we like it. to use. Yeah, yeah. I think we're, we're a very right. homocentric uh, yeah. species by definition, right? Uh, yeah, we're 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 very uh, self-involved species, and I think that's what needs to evolve. Personally, I think that's what gets to evolve in this this time right now is our awareness of ourselves, our awareness of our home planet, and then possibly our awareness of uh, interdimensional or interplanetary travel. And, and through that, I think there's a lot of these decisions that we'll have to make. And a lot of um, them will involve us, as you said, redefining who we are in the first place. Absolutely. Mo, is there anything else you'd like to share? Any shout out you'd like to make? Any um, call to action you'd like to give people? I think just thanking you for having me here and uh, hoping to, uh, to read some very cool comments from people and see what I'm missing. <laughs> maybe uh, maybe we'll be touching some topics that uh, touch some people's nerves and uh, they are pretty excited to share what they feel. And uh, I'll be happy to also have uh, these discussions over uh, the messages here. Nice. Thank you so much, Mo. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me and I uh, hope to see you soon. that's that another episode of green planet blue planet podcast i hope you truly enjoyed this one and received some insights knowledge and a form of learning that you can directly apply to your life into your relationships or maybe even into your business and the way you show up for the world because this is a movement and we're all part of it very much so and we're in this together we're here to create a world of a triple bottom line where you win i win and the entire planet wins We're raising consciousness together, and you know that. That's why you're listening. That's why I love you. So make sure to share the love. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Invite a friend to listen to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. And if you have an idea who else you'd like me to interview, make sure you reach out and send me a suggestion. Definitely check out greenplanet-blueplanet.com, the website to the podcast. I've created a lot of different offers for you, free content, free meditations for you to amplify your connection to self, the state of social impact in the world, and for you to connect and listen to who you could support of the people that I actually interview because their missions are ongoing and a lot of them need more collaboration. And after more than 100 episodes now with some of the world's leading social impact experts, I have synthesized my most inspired learnings and takeaways to create coaching and mentorship programs for you and the people around you. Let me share with you about planetary purpose coaching and mentorship experiences. If you're in a space in your life where you're ready to level up to amplify who you are, what's coming through you and what you're doing to give your gift to the world, then I would love to hear from you. And I'd love for you to apply to one of my private mentorships or group mentorships. Because getting all of the juice, all of that life force that's in you out into the world is something you deserve and the entire world around us deserves. 
Also, I work with people who are entirely new to this, to the topic of planetary purpose or the topic of meditation, the topic of inside evolution and revolution. And if that's you and you're ready to step out of the ordinary and into creation, or if you know someone who is totally ready for that, make sure to check out the website or share the website. And you can also always shoot me a message on Instagram. I'll definitely read it and get back to you. Because, like, guys, this is real life. Let's be in touch and let's create this together. Last but not least, there's a few different group experiences I host, both in person and online. All of them are quantum learning environments, and I'm happy to tell you more. So simply inform yourself and stay connected, because whatever resonates with you, I'm here to support you and bring out more purpose into the world. And with that being said, wherever you are in the world, make sure to be you, show up all the way, be all in. Connect with someone today, make them smile, have yourself a stellar day. Lots of love to you and until soon. 